You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Jesus is on his approach to Jerusalem. The crowds are growing. The fans are growing, but the followers are not. They actually are still demanding in this passage more signs Jesus. They want the show. And if you ever wonder, why don't more miracles occur today? If we just had a couple clear miracles on TikTok, everyone would believe. Well, apparently not. Even if Jesus himself is doing them, the people largely go like, could we see something else? Is there a little more? Is a pretty common reply. And Jesus comments on this. He says in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation talking both to that generation, but it also means this generation of mankind. It's speaking to us. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. He wrote a short four-chapter book tucked right in there. It was actually a first sermon series ever here at Citizens, uh, long forgotten in the pandemic swirl. Maybe we'll just go right back to it. But Jesus actually tells two stories here, and it's about God witnessing to two different sinful pagan people in two different ways. In Jonah, God sends Jonah, this reluctant, selfish prophet, to Nineveh, which was this huge city of the Syrians deeper into Asia. And the issue here, what would strike the Jew, you know, just like, what are we doing? Why is Jonah so reluctant? Is this was an evil nation. These are the people conquering Israel and fighting with Israel. And so God says, Jonah, go to your enemies, my enemies, and call them to repent or the city's going to be destroyed. Jonah eventually goes. He preaches a five-word sermon in Hebrew. Five. It gives them five words. And apparently just repeats it all day walking around the city. And boom, the entire city repents and turns to God. Sometimes God sends someone to witness to us. We have a missionary God. And it's one of these historical witnessing moments that Asian people have always been part of the people of God. That is the story of the Bible. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He just is. He gives us more than five words. He gives us three years of preaching. He gives us what is probably hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles. Jesus is so much greater than Jonah, but then the second story highlights how God not only sends people to us, but also draws people in. He does both. And Jesus tells the story of the queen of the south. And what he's referencing is 1 Kings 10, where the queen of a place called Sheba comes to King Solomon, who is the wisest person to ever live. She goes from the ends of the earth and journeys to meet with Solomon, to hear his wisdom, to learn about God. And you might ask, where is Sheba? Well, Sheba is in Africa. It's Ethiopia. And when we see this historically backed, the Ethiopian people have had a long-standing religion of Judaism and a long-standing relationship to Christianity and their own tradition. So we see it in the Bible, but we see it as historical fact that African people have always been among God's people. That's the biblical account, and that's a historical account. Ethiopia, 
You can see it in their history. But even Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus isn't just drawing one queen or one city, but all people to himself. Jesus is the true king, the wisest king, and the most powerful king that brings all people to him because he's the only one who can give them life. And what Jesus is hammering home is these people don't need one more little sign. Jesus is the sign. God himself has come. You can be drawn, you can be reached, but however you hear of Jesus, however you come to know of him, your job is to receive him, not to demand another sign. And we will be accountable for rejecting Jesus, just like this generation was held accountable. And Jesus will only do a few more miracles. To be precise, there's one more exorcism in Luke. There are five more healings. But the final sign is coming, the sign of Jonah specifically, because this passage is also in Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, Jesus elaborates and says this. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man, that's a title of Jesus, so Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's one final big sign that's unlike any of the other signs to come. That Jesus will die on the cross, will be buried in the earth, and after three days will rise from the dead, making him the great final prophet to which there are no more. Which means for us, we need to repent and believe like the Ninevites. We need to take the wisdom of God like the queen of the south. That for us to delay is foolishness. We should not reject him, but accept him that there will be no more great signs. The sign has come. But Jesus elaborates what spiritual receiving really is. Because we're like, okay, I don't want to reject him. I want to receive him. I want to keep receiving him as a believer in Christ. What's that look like? Well, look at verse 33. I know it's a bit of a confusing passage, but it'll make more and more sense as we go. Verse 33 says this, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in the cellar, in the basement, or puts it under a basket, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your whole body. Now remember, eye and heart is kind of a connection in the ancient world, that that's the way things get in. It's also the center of you. It's kind of an interesting play of words. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye's healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body's full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you, the things you think you know, be careful the things you think are light might actually be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in the dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays, gives you light. And in this kind of story, parable, explanation, Jesus is the lamp. We are to receive him in our eye, receive him in our heart, but we're to receive him in this way that's publicly and completely or wholly, that our whole self receives him. Jesus cannot be our secret Lord. 
Jesus is not a secret. He is a public God. He's a walking around God. To follow him, you got to walk around with him. There is no secret following. There is no offshoot following. And furthermore, we must embrace Jesus in such a way that it has no part in the darkness. We let the light shine, not in part of us, but whole of us. That we would let the lamp pass through our eye, pass our heart, and illuminate every part of our body. That we wouldn't be tricked to think the things we hold so dear are actually light, but actually it's Jesus who shows us what's light and dark. We don't get to decide so much. And the light stretches to every part of our life. We can't add Jesus on with other teachings of religions. He wants to illuminate all of us. We don't get to blend parts from different ideas we have. And this was challenging then, and this was challenging now. Because our culture tempts us to mingle Jesus with a wide variety of other cultural values. Our culture likes to do a little, take a little Jesus, leave a little Jesus. Let me know if any of these sound familiar to you. Our culture says, take Jesus's loving and respectful ways. Wouldn't society be better? But leave Jesus's radical sexual ethics. Leave Jesus's radical sexual ethics that teach absolute celibacy outside of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. Leave that, that's oppressive. But get into the the love and respect stuff. That's part, but not whole. Take Jesus's concern for the poor and the marginalized. Focus on that, our culture says. But leave Jesus's call to any sacrificial generosity. That's not economically wise. Look at the stats of people without faith in their giving. You just Google it. Many, it's like 1% to 2% of their total income. Jesus in this very passage is going to call for 10% plus. Jesus' ethic for the poor and the marginalized is give your time, your money, your presence away freely. He wants us to actually care for the poor and the marginalized, not just post about it. Let's take it or leave it, Jesus. Don't let the line shine too much. Just a little light, a little dark, our culture says. Take Jesus' love. Take it. We're loved. Let your self-esteem be built up. You're loved by God. Incredible message, a life-changing message. But leave Jesus' call for careful, disciplined life. Live for eternity's sake. Because, you know, you only live once. Let Jesus' love just empower you to do whatever your heart wants instead of follow the heart of God. Take it from me. Take it from my personal mistakes throughout my Christian life. Take it from pastoral wisdom starting to pile up as the years go by. Not only does half-hearted following of Jesus not work, but half-hearted following of Jesus, it's half Jesus and half the world, leaves you with two handfuls of misery. The most miserable people I know are not those who don't know Jesus. It's those who know enough about Jesus to feel guilty and shame all the time because they know enough to know what they're doing is wrong, but they don't actually believe enough to accept his goodness and grace and follow him to feel the great joy of following Jesus. So they're left mostly miserable. You can't do half and half. 
that the light must shine to every part of our life. So let Jesus' light shine through your eye, illuminate in your heart, and illuminate everything in your life and receive him fully. Don't be like the crowds that one day if I get married, then I will follow. One day when I'm 30 or 40 or 50, then I will follow. If my kids turn out all right, I will follow. That is asking for signs. If I get into college, if this happens or this, or if you save my mom or you save my dad or whatever it is, don't be the people that's wandering around from signs, but look at Jesus, the great sign himself, and say, let the light in and let it burn through your life. Then Jesus, the crowd finishes, and a Pharisee rolls up to Jesus and says, you want to come to dinner? Which sounds really nice, but the Pharisee's actually trying to be his enemy. He wants to trap him and trick him. And even to the people who try to be Jesus's enemies, Jesus is gracious. And he says, sure. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished, astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The Pharisee is shocked. He's astonished. He's not astonished like everyone else in Luke at Jesus' teaching and miracles. He's astonished that Jesus isn't washing his hands. And it isn't because Jesus is gross. This is a ceremonial hand washing that was not a rule of the Bible, but was a rule among the Pharisees and that they taught everyone to do, to say, wash your hands like this, do a little ceremonial rub in the water to make sure you're clean before God before you eat. Jesus refuses this because he follows God's law. He doesn't follow man's law. And the Pharisee, it blows his mind. In another of Jesus's heart-reading moments, he responds to his astonishment by talking about dishes as an analogy for our life. The Pharisee's life is a cup. And they polish up the outside of the cup with their many rules and many things and extra stuff that's not in the Bible and not about God, but stuff they made up. And they polish the cup and they polish the cup and they polish the cup. And it's never about God because it's not God's rules. So who's it about? It's about impressing other people. They've made up a own rule book that centers on them to impress one another. And they polish the cup like a shiny dish. And here's the truth. Whenever we're busy going around impressing people, we're probably not paying attention to what's going on on the inside. If we're so focused on everybody else, and what they think of me, and we're totally in our heads, and totally worried about all this stuff, and, and we're trying to make up little rules of how we're going to impress them, there's no way we're taking an inward look, let alone an upward look. And Jesus calls it out and says, you are so busy impressing people with your religiosity because you're full of greed and wickedness. There is something horribly wrong on the inside. The cup is full of nasty, rotting food. I know y'all have never neglected dishes like that, so let me tell you how it actually works. If you leave food in there, 
to let it soak, it becomes a science project. You can smell it. It's gross. It doesn't work. It don't matter how clean the outside of the cup is. You put cereal in a nasty bowl, you're going to know. It ain't going to work. So Jesus says, you're cleaning the dish on the outside for people. You're leaving the dish on the inside dirty, and God made both. He does care what we do, but boy, he cares about what's inside us. Boy, he cares about our heart. Church, it's very possible to be super religious and not very close to God. When Jesus says God cares about the inside, he's speaking to what we would call our heart, our soul, the center of what it means to be you, the essential, spiritual, emotional, volitional, all those big words packed into this idea of the center and essence of what it means to be you. And you can feel the wind of the Old Testament just kind of blowing here, is this is a major theme of God's word. It's a major theme that what God really wants is your heart. Because everything we do flows from the desires of our heart. Look with me at Proverbs 4.23. It's a favorite verse. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That verse has been the password to my technology. I'm getting getting out here with y'all for over a decade because I want the scriptures to remind me every keystrokes to guard my heart above all else for everything I do flows from it. What we desire is what we ultimately do. What we desire most is what we ultimately do. And it isn't just a verse or two. This is a major thing that God is doing more than correcting our behavior. In fact, he's redeeming hearts. And in fact, God looks at our hearts. Look what it says in 1 Samuel 16. This is why God isn't just like saving us, like crossing us off a naughty list and putting us on a nice list. He is putting us on a new list, but he's also creating a new heart in us. Look at 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height of his stature because I have rejected him. Speaking of this good looking, tall, handsome, strong king from the right family. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. A man looks on outward appearance. That's what we do. A man looks at outward appearance, but what's the Lord look at? But the Lord looks on the heart. God cares about the inside. Because that's where it is. That's the essential you. And Jesus still sees our hearts today. He cares about the inside before the outside. And he speaks into this further greed and wickedness. He calls it out in their practices by giving three woes to the Pharisees. And a woe is a denouncement saying, this is wrong, this is evil, and judgment will be absolutely severe unless you change. There's no other way to define woe. He's saying this is absolutely wrong, And without listening to this stern warning, absolute destruction is next. Verse 42, but woe 
to you Pharisees. Jesus is bold as a lion. He's like at dinner eating these herbs. For you tithe or give 10% of your mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed at the synagogues. That's a local church. And greetings in marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. In the first woe, the Pharisees are literally tithing their herb garden. They had herb gardens just like we do. So they're picking their herbs for cooking, but then like weighing them in some way or counting the sprigs to set aside 10% of them to bring to church later. It'd be like, you'd be like, hey, Justin, I got three tomatoes for the church. And in one way, there's a sweetness that you want to give all things to God. However, to spend all that time carefully counting ounces of smelly weeds, yet neglect justice and love for your neighbor, reveals quite a problem. Because this we can see, neglect of justice and love of your neighbor mostly goes on your heart and eventually we see. They love to rub the outside of the cup, but they ignore the inside of the cup. Matthew 23 records the same speech of Jesus. And I love how Matthew puts it of quoting Jesus. It says they neglect the weightier things of God. Directly saying you're weighing out herbs, which is a couple ounces, and missing the 70 ton bricks of justice and love of God's character and what that means for you and what that means for you, your community. A righteous man cares about his God and cares about his neighbor and isn't so worried about the garden. Amen? The second woe, they love being important. They love having the best seat at church and where everyone knows their name like cheers. (laughs) That's where I think that line comes from is this verse and cheers. (laughs) Loving to be in leadership. For the sake of being in leadership is a warning sign. Loving to be in leadership for the sake of being in leadership is a warning sign. Spiritual leadership is weighty, it is difficult, and the best leaders of God's people love God and love people, and that's why they're leaders. It's not because they're in love with being in charge. It's not because they're in love with the hard work of leadership either. Too many people love what leadership potentially brings, honor, approval, respect, and they get into leadership for those benefits and it becomes a shipwreck to their faith because they're in it for the wrong reason. So even if they succeed, they lose. Too many seek out leadership as a vain attempt to fix their own insecurities, to fix the past, to grab on to control to grab on to power. In other words, they're greedy leaders who ultimately are in it for themselves. So even when they win, everyone loses. 
when Jesus shows us true leadership is always giving one's life away in the end. Usually not as dramatically as the cross, but in a thousand little ways is what true leadership is, is you before me, always. The final woe needs a lot of explanation because what he's referencing is you were made unclean by touching a grave. Numbers 19 highlights this specifically, but basically what's in a grave? A dead body. Touch a dead body, people die, ultimately because sin is in the world. So touch the dead body, makes you unclean, it makes you unclean before God, and you'd have to go through you know, a ritual and a process to become clean before God again. So what Jesus is saying, now that we know that, is Jesus is dropping the hammer saying, you are no spiritual leaders. You're just not. Instead, you're unmarked graves that everyone's walking around and touching all the time. You're making all of the people of Israel unclean by your behavior and the way you live and the way you lead. It's a poetic and biblical way to say you don't lead people towards God. You actually are leading people away. You are leading people away from God. All of your religiosity doesn't matter. It's not with me. It's for them, and it doesn't even help them. Listen, Jesus wants more than the obedience of our hands. He wants our hearts. If you want to avoid all this, he wants your heart. The Pharisees had gotten very busy with their hands outside of the cup, but not engaged with God from the heart. And this means at least two things for us. It probably means a lot of things, but I want to highlight two. One, we must ask, how much of what I do is about impressing others? That's just the simple cut of the question. How much of what I do is to shine the cup? in big ways and little ways. And here's the revealing next step. If everything you did in your life suddenly became secret and you became invisible and no one could ever see you, would you live your life any different? Because everything that would fall away, if you were an invisible person walking around, like, you know, the sixth sense or a ghost or something crazy, (laughs) if it became only about you and God, everything else stays the same. And your life and words were invisible, would that matter? Or would you live your life radically differently? Because it's about what people can see. It's a deep question. The second thing I think we must see is we must listen to the back half of verse 42. Because there is a twisted modern lie. I'm going to say it's in the South, but it's probably everywhere. But I've heard it in the South so many times that goes something like this. And it's talking about these very concepts. It says, Jesus cares about my heart, so obeying Jesus doesn't really matter. Jesus cares about the heart, so like, you know, all the rules or, or stuff I find in the Bible doesn't really matter. He knows my heart. And that's a lie. Because while Jesus does care about the heart first and foremost, look at verse 42. This is Jesus talking. This isn't like a guy talking about what Jesus said. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 42, he says it like this. These you ought to have done, referencing doing justice and love of God, without neglecting the others, tithing and other things like that that are specifically prescribed in the Bible. 
When our heart belongs to Jesus, we obey Jesus' words, the Bible, sincerely from the heart. The rebuke here isn't for us to obey God's word less. It's an invitation to obey God's word more and from our heart. Yes, we should stop doing extra biblical things and rulemaking. Stop that. Yes, we should stop living to impress people. Stop. Yes, we should stop doing using religion to try to even uh, do anything but pursue God. However, we don't skip our hands in the name of our heart. God wants it to flow from heart to hands. The heart is not a reason to drift your attention away from obedience. That would be to miss a relationship with God altogether. In fact, you may have never considered it. Think about this. In fact, that's just another way to become a Pharisee. Two sides of the same coin. The New Testament Pharisee we see right here, they make up extra laws. They don't actually obey God, but they obey their made-up laws. And that's what makes them about the outside of the cup. The modern Pharisee doesn't obey God's laws in the name of being all about the heart. And in the end, doesn't obey God either. We might be a morally sloppy Pharisee over a strict one, but both miss God to follow their own opinions over the clarity of God's word. At the end of the day, it's two different, somewhat sophisticated ways to talk ourselves out of giving God our heart and obeying from there. And then, what is one of the most tragic and humorous moments in all the Gospels happens. Remember, they're at dinner. Maybe there's a dozen disciple-y kind of guys. Maybe a dozen religious authority types, Pharisees, lawyers, these scribes. And this lawyer pops up, and this is a scribe of the Pharisee, which means he copies the Old Testament all day long. He's scribe. Bang, bang, bang. And he's also responsible for education and teaching the community and sharing God's word in that way. He's an expert. He's actually working probably as a lawyer in the community too because who knows the law better? In verse 45, one of the lawyers answered Jesus after hearing these three woes that are intense. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus, just to make you aware, like, a couple of us are catching feelings on this. I, I don't know if you mean to offend me. I know you're going after the Pharisees, but I'm tiny, slightly different, also following the same Pharisee religion. But I write this stuff down more. Are you sure this is for me? Could you separate this out to make sure no one gets confused? And Jesus said, woe to you lawyers, scribes also. The lawyer has a wild amount of lack of self-awareness. And Jesus informs him, eyeball to eyeball, I am indeed intentionally offending you. For your good, it's about to get very offensive directly to you since you want an extra helping. It's not a side eye, it's an eye to eye. He gives three more woes. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. 
you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Because of the way they taught and interpreted the scriptures, they were giving people burdens that God didn't give them. You need to wash your hands. They had, I think it's like 100 plus rules about the Sabbath. It wasn't just keep the Sabbath, rest, keep it holy, worship God. It was all these various ways you could violate it in a way that the common person had no chance of obeying all these things, nor would it actually rest their soul. And the rules went on and on for every little part of life. They had turned the scripture into a maze of religious duties to find God. Like we were a rat and there's some cheese eventually, but the maze is gigantic. And Jesus is saying, scripture is not meant to be an obstacle course to get to God. You have wildly missed the point, lawyers. Instead, as the Psalms say, but you can find it in many places, I just happen to love this one. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If the lawyers were doing their job, Scripture should feel like a lamp and a light. Have we heard that before in this passage? And suddenly why it's included becomes clear. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the light. He actually says these things in the book of John. That Jesus, by his word, the word is Jesus, should light our whole life. Scripture should feel like an invitation to know God, to see Jesus coming and receive him, and learn how to live with God there are instructions. But to make scripture cloudy when it's clear makes you quite evil, scribe. God's word isn't meant to confuse you, but help you. And Jesus continues with a second woe. Verse 47. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Jesus is saying your spiritual forefathers, maybe your literal forefathers, have actually killed these Old Testament prophets that in your current day, you're building like tombs and monuments for to show how much you respect the prophets. And Jesus is saying you're living the same religion as them. You're living the same heartless religion that led to the stoning of these prophets. You're honoring these prophets of old as if you would obey them. When often they weren't obeyed, the message was repent and turn to God. Well, guess who's right here telling you repent and turn to God? Jesus, the final prophet, the greater Jonah, and you're not obeying. And that's what he goes on to explain. He's saying God is sending apostles and prophets, namely Jesus, John the Baptist, his disciples, all who will be killed by mostly religious leaders. He's saying you're hypocrites. And he references this interesting part where it says the guilt from Abel, who's the first murder in the Bible, Genesis 4, it doesn't take long. Cain kills Abel. The Bible is one big murderous story of the wickedness of the human heart all the way to Zechariah, who this is the Zechariah of 2 Chronicles 24, who dies in the temple being stoned to death. He's saying, you are the same sort of people who've committed all these murders throughout the Hebrew Bible. And Chronicles is the last chapter in the Hebrew version of the Bible and how they order the books. 
So Jesus is saying from A to Z, literally Abel to Zechariah, you're the same people who've been murdering everyone. You are not to be trusted. No human heart's to be trusted. And this guilt will lie on you unless you turn to the prophet who stands in front of you. But spoiler alert, Jesus dies at the end of the story. He rises too, but he dies at the very hand of these people. He gives them a third and final woe. Jesus drops this obvious and crushing reality we've been talking about really the whole time. In verse 52, it says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. You scribes, you know the Bible best, yet you missed the point of the Bible because you're missing me right now. Jesus is the key. And they're ignoring him and accusing him and fighting with him. And they haven't entered a relationship with God through Christ at all. Even more, they've actively kept Israel. They're the people who know how to read. People don't even know how to read the culture. And they've kept people from discovering the Bible that's a light and a lamp that would lead them straight to Jesus. And it highlights a fundamental misunderstanding that still exists today because of our hard hearts. Look at this question. Is the Bible about us and what we need to do? Or is the Bible about God and how he saves or what Christ has done? If you believe the Bible is about us and what we need to do, you will go build your own obstacle course. It's not just them. We will start constructing our own Spartan race out there that we can win and no one else can and we'll feel great about it, but we'll lose. Because the Bible is about God. It's a story of God coming to create all things. The fall occurs in God's plan to save, redeem, rescue, and restore kingdom forevermore. And the Bible is about what Christ has done. And the question becomes, is your life mostly about you or is it mostly about God? Because the only way we would interpret the Bible that way is if fundamentally we believe life was about us. So naturally, this book's about me. But if you fundamentally believe my, God is, my life is about God, then of course God's Bible is about God. That's a switcheroo. That's the move. Is your hope in your goodness for life or is your hope in Jesus's goodness for your life? They're vastly different things. You can be religious either way but one leads to death and one leads to life. So maybe you realize as we're walking through all this, at least one or two of these woes, maybe all six, stick in your bones a little bit. That you realize I, I might be polishing the cup a bit here. That these woes are like arrows from Jesus and maybe one caught in the rib cage. So what do you do? What do you do? When you realize by Jesus' words, you, you, you fall short. I know I fall short. What do you do? Because Jesus actually embeds right in the middle of this. It's easy to overlook. In verse 41, he gives the sweetest answer you're ever going to hear. Look at verse 41 with me. It says, for the Pharisees, the lawyers, for all people of all time." But give as alms, that's generous giving. Give as generous giving, typically to the poor, but it's not used that way here, per se. 
but give his alms, those things that are within. Got a problem with cleaning the outside of the cup? Jesus' recommendation? Give your heart to God. And behold, everything is clean for you. No more making up obstacle courses. You can quit them. But all God cares about in this deal is that you give your heart to God, the man who makes the outside and the inside of the cup. But if you give your heart to God, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say get out your toothbrush and fix all that greed and wickedness in your heart. He says, give it to me. I got a plan for that. Because here's the thing, you can't clean up that inside of the dish. And as long as you're not willing to give all of what's inside, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of your story, all of your past, all of your life, all of your future, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all that you are, good, bad, and ugly, that's what Christ wants. That's what the Pharisees and lawyers will reject at the end of the passage. But what Christ wants for you is not to get busy scrubbing the outside of the cup harder or even scrubbing the inside of the cup. He says, I'm going to scrub the cup. I'm going to be the scrubber that actually is going to get you home. I'm going to be the scrubber. I'm the guy bending over the sink and doing the dishes and getting hot and sweaty on the cross for you. He's the only one who can get all that off the dish. Jesus says the busy religious people, give me your heart, including all the mess. He made the outside and the inside. What do you think God cares about more? The outside where everyone can see or the inside that only God can see? Jesus died for the inside and the outside on the cross to forgive sins and transform us by faith. And that's the hard work of heart work. That's the real journey in Christianity. There's a trap. You become a young believer and you just get busy. I'm just going to stop this and do this. And that partly is right. But very quickly, we can start to say, and look at my cup, baby. Instead of saying, I'm going to work really hard here and it's going to have great results on the outside. But the work's actually in here. How quickly we hear the gospel of grace and move on to the gospel of works. Read the book of Galatians. It's a whole thing. Who bewitched you to move away from the gospel of grace? My kids have these little blocks. We got some teachers in the house. Counting blocks. What are they called? Oh, you got to yell them. Yell at EA. Oh, gosh. That's why I don't know the word. Unifix cubes. And they help kids count. They're all, they got symbols and colors and they count them up and count them up. And T-Bone has a terrible, that's my son. He likes being called that. (laughs) He has a terrible habit that he just flips the whole bag or box over and a hundred cubes just go everywhere. And then I step on them in the middle of night and I don't say any curse words and I keep walking. (laughs) And I get frustrated because the cubes are all over the place. God, what's giving your heart to God like? It's like turning over the contents of your heart and letting all the blocks out. 
and he's not frustrated that it's a big old mess. He's not frustrated at all. He knows it's a mess. He knows you got to shake it a little harder. You didn't get them all out. The good parts of you, the bad parts of you, all of it. Will you take responsibility for the contents of your own heart? Not declaring them all right and good. Some emotions are good, some are bad, some are wrong. But would you take responsibility to flip over that bin, let all the blocks out, flip the purse over, let all the junk out, and say, Lord, this is all I know of me. This is all that I am. And I'm just going to put it at your feet because you said for me to give you the inside. This isn't just a message to come to Christ. This is how you grow in Christ. The gospel is the A to Z, not the ABCs. And as you grow and flipping over that blocks again and again, and even learning to do it in front of people, you will take off in growth. This is salvation and sanctification. This is Christianity at its very, very best. And if you're struggling to say, what if I actually was honest about everything in my heart? If you're struggling with, why would I do that? Why would I do that hard work? Why would I do what is potentially extremely painful? Why would I do that, Justin? Why on earth is that a good idea? And I would just say, Jesus is worthy of getting your heart because he's the only religious leader you can completely trust. Guess who never neglected justice or the love of God? Guess who never preened for authority or people's approval or cared where he sat? Guess who has an unmarked, empty grave? Guess who actually makes everyone clean when they touch him? Guess who takes our burdens and leads us to God? He doesn't give us any other burdens. He says, my yoke is easy and my burdens are light. He's the opposite of a religious leader who can't wait to give you burdens. He's a leader with no monument because he has an empty tomb. He's a prophet that lives forever and ever and ever and ever. That's always true. He's a leader who is the key of life. He is the point of the entire Bible and he's worth dumping out all the blocks and all of your heart to him. And you can always trust him. They reject Jesus largely in the story, but your story can be different. You can receive Jesus and keep receiving him now, today, and forever as he stands as our high priest forevermore. Give him your heart. Spill out the blocks. Let him rebuild that heart into a beautiful thing that shows the whole world like a light on a stand forevermore.